0: Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, why American immigration policy never seems to change. All right, let's start the show.
1: Hey, y'all. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. So it's been almost two weeks since I first saw these really graphic images that I cannot get out of my head. You probably saw them too. Black Haitians being chased by light-skinned law enforcement officers, on horseback at the Texas border. To see people treated like they did, horses barely running them over, people being strapped, it's outrageous. I
2: promise you, those people will pay.
1: They will be. Those images made me think of slave patrols. Since those images shocked the country, the Biden administration has launched an investigation. It's also temporarily suspended the longtime practice of horseback patrols. And this week, the administration also tried to undo some Trump-era arrest policies for ICE. They directed immigration officers to focus on threats to public safety rather than a person's immigration status. But despite campaigning on immigration reform, there are other ways the Biden administration is actually continuing President Trump's immigration policy. Like in its justification for deporting Haitian migrants.
2: Title 42, it grants the president, working alongside the Surgeon General, the authority to prevent people and or goods from traveling into the United States during a public health emergency in order to try to prevent the spread of disease.
1: This week, I called up Caitlin Dickerson. She's a friend of the show and a staff writer at The Atlantic. She's been covering immigration for years.
2: And there are many scientists, including you know, recent former CDC officials, who've come forward and challenged the Biden administration, saying, you know, this order is not scientifically sound. You're calling it, you know, a public health provision, but it's actually being used as an immigration policy.
1: And Caitlin says historically, American immigration policy has always favored some races and some parts of the world more than others.
2: I think the Biden administration is, in particular, um, getting new pressure that you're seeing them respond to really important Democratic allies, even you know Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, who are talking about these policies in a new way, talking about you know the role of race in these policies. Chuck Schumer has called the extension of Title Forty Two xenophobic.
0: So I urge President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas to immediately put a stop to these expulsions and to end this Title 42 policy at our southern border. Hmm.
2: And the Congressional Black Caucus mm-hmm. members have talked about you know, the way that these images speak to You know, much more shameful moments in United States history. It's also reminded, I think, Americans about the disparate treatment of asylum seekers throughout history. You know, asylum is supposed to be this kind of altruistic policy that we have to offer people safe haven, but it's also always been very political. And what I found in my reporting on this issue is that historically, Haitians have had a very difficult time getting asylum in the United States going all the way back to the Reagan era. Even when United States presidents would acknowledge that the circumstances in Haiti um, were sufficient to grant people asylum status because of political instability, because of violent dictators who were in power at various points because of gang violence and, and these deadly earthquakes. American presidents, again, Republican and Democrat, have acknowledged that Haitians should qualify for asylum and then a bunch of people apply and then those doors are shut immediately. Why? Because too many people were applying. And this happened under mm. both President Bush and President Clinton. And so when you compare yeah. that to you know hundreds of thousands of you know, refugees from communist countries throughout Europe and China who came to the United States during the Cold War, and then you look at Haitians who have more often than not had the door shut on them, that's kind of this new pressure that the Biden administration is facing yeah. now to, to answer for, you know, why does yeah. that discrepancy exist?
1: Yeah. Well, and you've written about this um, for most of Western Europe if you can afford a plane ticket to get into the U.S., you can kind of just stay. And there's going to be a lot less pressure and surveillance on you to get you back to your home country, right?
2: Exactly, yes. I mean, there are disparities that exist that are kind of baked in from the very beginning uh, when it comes to our immigration policies. If you're coming from a wealthy country, if you're somebody of privileged background, it's very easy for you to buy a plane ticket, get to the United States. And then if you want to claim political asylum because of some destabilization in your home country, you can walk into an immigration office and ask for it and go through a non-adversarial administrative procedure to have your case heard. And right, as you point out, if you're a white immigrant, for the most part, you're going to kind of fade into the background you're not going to be somebody that you know ice is looking in your community and surveilling and try to figure out who you are we see great disparities i mean it's true that the majority of immigrants without legal status in the united states are latino but the percent or the degree to which those communities are policed is not on par with their their representation in the undocumented population
1: yeah you know and and you know These things don't happen by mistake or by accident. You wrote in a recent article for The Atlantic that America's immigration policy has always favored certain races over others, often explicitly. Um, Can you take us back to how the original language on immigration read in America's founding?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was kind of a revelation for me. I think probably like you, Sam, I grew up, you know, learning in social studies class that the United States is a nation of immigrants, that it was founded as a place of refuge for people who had been, you know, victimized based on their religious beliefs. Um, and the sort of founding principle of the country was that, you know, you know, freedom and openness and that people were supposed to be able to thrive here regardless of their background. Yeah. That's not the whole story. There's actually a lot missing there. So what I learned is that our immigration laws, first and foremost, were established as a form of racial control, very specifically in the United States, going back to 1790, when the idea of citizenship is codified by the first American Congress, and it's made available only to free white men. Our Mm -hmm. next immigration law is um, the very well-known Chinese exclusion law which is then followed in 1917 by an immigration act that bars Asians from across the continent. Um, And then we get to 1924, which is the era of eugenic, you know, racialized science, the, the science that has been completely debunked, but at the time you know, led members of Congress to believe that people of white Nordic backgrounds were racially superior. And we created an immigration law that established quotas based on that now debunked science. We also had a practice of requiring migrants coming in from Mexico only to bathe in border patrol stations. That lasted until the 1930s. And again, it was only Mexican immigrants based on this idea that they somehow were more likely to be dirty, um, which is of mm. course not true. And this remains the case until the 1960s, until the civil rights era, when we pass a new immigration law that eliminates these express references to race. But by then these ideas about you know black and brown immigrants are already baked into not only our laws, but also our culture um, yeah. and our stereotypes and just how we think about people.
1: Coming up, more with Caitlin Dickerson on U.S. immigration policy and what truths America might have to reckon with to move forward on this issue. Stay with us.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Lincoln Financial. Pursuing your dreams starts with financial security. Lincoln can help you get started, whether it's protecting you and your family from life's unexpected events or planning for retirement. Lincoln can help you enjoy today while staying on track for tomorrow. Visit lfg.com slash get started to discover how Lincoln Financial Solutions can help you plan, protect, and retire. Lincoln Financial is the marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and Affiliates. Copyright 2021.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Russell's Reserve. When master distiller Eddie Russell created Russell's Reserve, he sought to make a bourbon delicious for everyone. You can count on their age to perfection, 10-year-old bourbon to sip neat on the rocks or in a classic Boulevardier cocktail. Order Russell's Reserve for delivery from Drizzly today and share with your chosen family. Russell's Reserve, 45% alcohol by volume, 90 proof, 2020 Campari America, New York, New York. Please drink responsibly. And so from the start, America's immigration policy um, has favored certain races and parts of the world over others. But then something changes in 1965 that seems to level the playing field in a big way. Even though it wasn't intended to do that, I'm talking about the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. What did that do? And how did it surprise the folks who wrote that law?
2: Yeah, so scholars and historians who went back and studied the congressional record uh, behind the 1965 law found that the Democratic members of Congress who introduced it, even JFK who supported it at the time and talked a lot about this idea of a nation of immigrants, you know, they were very open about the fact that when they wanted to eliminate these race and nationality-based quotas from our immigration laws, they said to other members of Congress, don't worry, this is not going to dramatically change the racial makeup of the country. Wow. And in fact, they came up with a system of family reunification, of prioritizing you know, visas for people who already had family members living in the United States as opposed to prioritizing, for example, you know, what sectors in the economy needed more help and doing sort of work-based visas. That was because of the assumption that at the time, you know, the majority white population of immigrants would make up the majority of those who requested new visas. And so it was a way of eliminating race in name. But the hope was perpetuate um, the system where we have mostly white immigrants who are allowed into the United States based on the fact that their family members lived here.
1: And we all know now that that didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) The exact opposite kind of happened, right?
2: The plan backfired and completely changed the demographic nature of this country, you know, to the point where, as you know, we're going to be a majority-minority country in the next decade or two. So that 1965 law was taken advantage of in massive numbers by people from South Asia, from South and Central America and Mexico – from parts of Africa and the Caribbean um, and completely changed the nature of the country. Yeah.
1: Well, and like that puts the Biden White House in this really tricky situation. Um, increasingly on the left, there is an acknowledgement of the ways that racism has been baked into lots of American law and policies since its start. So, in that scenario, you can't have Joe Biden just continue the status quo on immigration anymore because his party and Democrats are increasingly less status quo on things like immigration policy. They are questioning the very structure itself. How does Biden handle that? You know, how does he both speak to a nation raised on the optimistic language of America being a nation of immigrants, but also speak to his supporters and his base continually and even more so now than ever questioning those very systems and where they come from?
2: You know what I've found, Sam, looking back at the history is that changing immigration laws requires, in the United States, it requires leadership, it requires boldness, and it requires a willingness to get people mad at you. You know, We have never, I've learned, passed an immigration law in the United States without a big fight. Immigration has always been divisive. It, there are so many examples. You look back after the Vietnam War, for example, You know, did all Americans want tons of um, Vietnamese refugees to come to the United States? No, they didn't. But that was something that was led mm. by the White House and by members of Congress who decided to push for it anyway because they thought it was the right thing to do. But it w- it's been interesting for me to think about that because one of the things I heard most often from President Trump's immigration advisors was that, they weren't scared to make people mad. You know, they would say things to me like, yeah, yeah, we're not scared to take a few few arrows. We know that's going to happen. But we believe so strongly in what we want to achieve that, you know, we think it's worth it. And so that is interesting compared to the approach that Democrats have taken, you know, historically in the last few administrations where you see them trying to please everybody. And then at the end of four years or the end of eight years, Not that much has changed.
1: They don't get anything done. What would comprehensive immigration reform that acknowledged America's racialized history and current disparities, what would that look like? Is there anything that could be done that could make what's happened at the border now functional? Right now, it just seems dysfunctional
2: definitely uh pie in the sky is is what would have to address all those things you're asking for but i think there are clear ways to start certain things that all americans or or most americans um agree on you know offering a pathway to citizenship to dreamers and even to undocumented workers who don't have serious criminal records you know these are things that most of the country is on the same page about where we're divided is on things like asylum, who qualifies and who doesn't. And and that's where I think we need to have a reckoning as a country and decide, you know, do we want this system to be applied equally and fairly across the world to those who qualify? Because historically that hasn't been the case.
1: Yeah. Well and also comprehensive immigration reform would also require the American people to own up and fess up to some harsh truths about America's history of immigration. In one of your articles, you kind of debunk this talking point. You hear a lot um, that European people and white Americans with European ancestors, they all came in, quote, the right way. You wrote that a lot of immigrants from Europe just came over um, and they got the right paperwork after the fact because the US government wanted to help them get that done they didn't afford that same courtesy to anybody else right and how much is America and Americans, how much are we ready to acknowledge those truths?
2: That's a tough one. The, that myth of the righteous immigration is so pervasive. And, you know, it's not any individual's fault. I don't think in most cases it's a pernicious thing. It's, it's what people grow up learning. And they don't realize, right, that especially when it comes to people whose grandparents and great-grandparents came over from Europe, you know, they may have arrived at the United States at Ellis Island, at a time when you didn't need a visa, and you you just could pass a medical check and you could get here and start working. Um, if you were from Southern Europe, if you were Jewish, you wouldn't have been eligible for citizenship at the time. But programs that were introduced later allowed those immigrants from Europe to be able to legalize and become citizens in a very routine way. And those same privileges just were never extended to people from other parts of the world who came irregularly as well. And so... That myth, I think, gives people this impression that there's this fundamental unfairness in the immigration system. but the m- misguided way in which many Americans believe, you know that they i guess it's deserve to be here because of something that their grandparents did right. I mean, that's setting us back. That, that's making it hard for us to have an honest conversation and move forward mm. just because of, of this untruth that at this point should be addressed um, and should be reckoned with honestly in order to be able to move forward.
1: Well, hey, Caitlin, thank you for covering these issues and for making it all plain for the rest of us. I appreciate you.
2: Thanks so much, Sam.
1: Well, you stick around uh, as we totally change gears after the break and literally play a game.
2: I mean, yeah,
1: I'd love to. Okay. Thank you, Caitlin. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Jo explains the importance of creating a safe space for therapy. I can't tell you how many times I've had clients that say that expression, like, I've never told that to anybody. That's when I know I've made some kind of momentous move with this person. They feel safe enough to expose that part of themselves. And doing that together with somebody else can be very powerful. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com minute.
1: All right, I'm back with Caitlin Dickerson of The Atlantic. Thank you for sticking around, Caitlin. My pleasure. All right. And we're joined uh, by public radio All-star, Megan (laughs) Kane, super senior boss of the NPR podcast Life Kit. Hey, Megan.
3: Hey, Sam. How are you?
1: I'm good. Tell our listeners what Life Kit is.
3: So Life Kit is NPR's how-to advice podcast. Uh, We cover everything from personal health, finance, mental health, uh, as well as parenting, career advice, and kind of everything in between. And the idea is, you know, we think everyone needs a little help being human. So we are your kind of friendly coach that says, hey, like... You can do this and we have some actionable advice for you.
1: Yeah, I have done one or two with y'all.
3: You have.
1: My favorite one was like how to have a good weekend, which is basically just put your phone down and go outside.
3: <laughs> exactly. And as, as a super tip from that that I use all the time is schedule something fun for the end of your weekend mm-hmm. cuz then you will help shake the Sunday scaries.
1: Such good advice. It is time now to play my favorite game, who said that?
3: Ooh, and this, and that. Who said that? Who said that?
1: This game is very simple. Who said that? I share three quotes from the week of news, and you tell me who said it or what story we're talking about. So, Caitlin, you have played Who Said That before?
2: I believe that I have. I believe that I have not ever won Who Said That, and I, I plan to change that. Today.
1: <laughs> What's going to be different in your approach to the game this time?
2: You know, I am just I'm came with the right mindset,
1: mm-hmm. um, <laughs> came with the right
2: attitude, had a fair amount of coffee today. So okay.
3: I'm just going to leave it all out on the court.
1: There you go. Megan, how are you feeling ahead of this showdown?
3: Um, I feel like I will not do as well as when I'm alone in my car listening to this game, where I'm always right.
1: <laughs> well, wow. <laughs> the great thing about this game is that no matter who wins, it will not matter. There are no prizes, none whatsoever. Shall we get to it?
2: Let's do it. I like, I like those stakes.
1: All right. This first quote is a fill-in-the-blank. Mr. Blank's handlers designated an unnamed White House official known as the Music Man— to play him his favorite show tunes including memory from cats to pull him from the brink of rage
3: i mean trump he's he's a musical guy
1: he's a musical guy he's a new yorker come oh, on he's there a new we go. yorker
3: I'm shocked and
2: speechless. I completely missed this. I, yeah, why don't we know about this?
1: Yeah, so this quote comes from an article in the New York Times. They were covering Stephanie Grisham's new tell-all book about her time working as press secretary in the Trump White House. And the book is full of juicy stories. And one of them is that Trump used to have to have show tunes like Memory from Cats played for him when he was angry in the office and honestly i'm not mad at that i
3: mean i get it (laughs) theater kids feel deep (laughs) and when you need to let it out as a former theater kid who was actually in a production of the music man i totally get this that
2: makes sense to me i'm
3: also one of those
2: very weird people who enjoys cats so and i hate to admit that publicly (laughs) the movie
1: or the play the movie or the play the play have you seen the movie
2: Yes, I have seen the movie, and I, and that's why I said the play. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, I've seen the movie, and I mean, it's entertaining. I'm not saying it's good, but it is entertaining.
1: No. I went, I went to see the movie solo right when it came out, because I was like, I want to see this train wreck. And I remember thinking the film was done. Oh, no. But then when you think it's done, the cats come back for like an encore. And when they came back, I literally in my seat in the theater said, Oh! <laughs> I was like, <laughs> <laughs> shooketh. From the cats coming back, I
2: totally enjoyed watching it, and would even watch it again. It's just not something that I would reach to as a balm in the way that yeah, I might like yeah. put in the VHS tape. And this is embarrassing, but that we had of the of Cats on Broadway, and
3: that had a little bit of a soothing effect.
1: Which cat do you most identify with?
3: Uh, There's like a train cat, right? He like tap dances.
2: Yeah, the train one's good. He and he's really good in the film too. But what's the? I'm forgetting like my favorite song. Methuselah, where it's like, no, the something cat, the something cat. It's a it's a genre of cat. Oh, it's jellicle not a specific cat. cat. Well, they're all jellicle cats. The jellicle cat, right? Oh, sorry, they're all <laughs> jellicle cats. Okay, well, I I also want to be a jellicle cat. But
1: <laughs> what's the jellicle song? That one was fun. It's the jellicle, jellicle, jellicle cats. Angelical cats. And jellicle cats. Jellicle songs for jellicle cats. Jellicle songs for jellicle cats. Jellicle songs for jellicle. Cats. jellicle, songs for jellicle
3: just over and over, angelical cats. I mean, it's so the joke catchy. about cats is, like, if you like cats introducing themselves, you'll like cats. That's all you
1: need to, that's all you're <laughs> watching for. Who got that first point? I did. You did get it. <laughs> okay, okay. Just saying, you Megan asked. Megan got it. I, re- right. I remember. Yeah, yeah.
2: Okay. Good job, Megan. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it.
1: <laughs> Here's the next quote. There are few things in life that are dreams come true. This is mine. Who said that?
3: Whoa! I have no idea. Hmm. It's this about is-
1: an iconic TV show coming back to the small screen soon.
3: A TV show. Um, the
1: crime procedural. Oh, America's
3: Note. most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Law oh. and Order.
1: Who said Law and Order? Caitlin. Law and order? Caitlin did. Caitlin but the did original, you
3: like Thank the original. You. There's a million yeah. Law and Orders though.
1: Yeah. So that quote comes from Law and Order creator Dick. Wolf, The one and only. And he was talking about the news this week that his classic show, Law & Order, is returning to TV. So Law & Order, the first one, the original one, it left the airwaves in 2010. Since then, of course, we've seen all the spinoffs, SVU, Ice-T&M, Chris Maloney continuing to do whatever, all of those shows. But they're going to bring back the original. How do I feel about that?
3: I think my mom will be thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) Um, she's seen every Law & Order and she will always be as soon as an episode comes on she's like no it's never the first guy that they bring on it's the guy after that like she knows the whole like formula
1: so they're thinking that they might get some of the beloved characters back from the original series but the cast is still not fully set I mean if y'all could pick anybody to lead the cast of an original Law & Order reboot who would it be?
2: I don't know why The Rock comes to mind for oh. me immediately.
1: That's a different show at that point. <laughs> it's a slapstick <laughs> comedy at that point.
2: You don't think The Rock okay. can do dramatic?
1: If they could make Ice T a convincing television law enforcement officer after he after the songs he was rapping for so long, they can do anything.
2: <laughs> I think The Rock can do dramatic. I think he's underestimated as an actor. Mm-hmm. I think you know he showed that in in performances such as San Andreas. You know. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> An, a, a full, oh uh, fundamentally funny movie, but but one with moments of heart. I would argue.
1: I would pick for a Law and Order reboot. I would pick Rihanna. She's not the world's best actress, but she's fun to watch and like imagine. Like yeah. Rihanna getting the criminals. I Come think on. because
3: she's so cool and like would have to do very little to like get people to confess because they'd be like, oh my god, like Agent Rihanna is like telling me. Like, I have to confess, and all she gives is, like, one icy stare, and then she cracks the case. Rihanna has
1: no need for handcuffs. She just tells you to get in the squad car. Exactly. And you do. And you do. You do. Yep, you go, okay. She could wear her Fenty Beauty makeup in the show.
3: She could wear
1: whatever the clothes (laughs) she makes in the show. It's a perfect opportunity for cross-promotion. Who's listening out there? Make this happen.
3: I love this. There could be a whole episode about where her album is. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Ooh. Rihanna, release the album. Release. Rihanna, your
3: fans are salty.
1: <laughs> I'm going to give you four points just for that one lighter.
3: Oh, thank That was you. really great, Wow, baby. Caitlin, I really think you're great. left in the dust now.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it's over for me, but, you All know, right. I enjoy the journey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> last quote, last quote. Uh, this is to break the tie. What famous pop star said this this week? Milan, tell the truth. How your mommy has confronted the wild boars? What? What? Y'all didn't see this?
2: <gasps> no. no. Is it Kanye? Mm,
1: it's a bilingual pop megastar.
2: Bad
3: Bunny.
1: Go further back. She Arthur. was part of the original Latin explosion.
3: Oh, uh, Gloria Estefan?
1: Mm, no. A little further. In further the future, back. Late nineties. Oh, late. 90s. What, early two so, thousands. Uh-huh. Hips don't lie.
3: Oh Shakira!
1: Yeah. Wow,
2: you really you really handed that to us on a yes, silver platter. I, I did not.
1: Mm-hmm. Y'all didn't see this? No, I totally missed this. Shakira had to fight off wild boars this week.
3: Wow! What?
1: Yeah, so Shakira is in Barcelona these days because her husband uh, plays soccer or football, as it's called over there, for the team in Barcelona. But on her Instagram story this week, she was recounting the story of how she and her eight-year-old son were confronted by and almost attacked by wild boars in Barcelona recently.
3: Wow. Wow. That must have been scary.
1: I mean, so what's crazy is she fights off the boars who grab her bag, but she gets it back. She was saying they wanted to take her bag, which had her cell phone, <laughs> off into the woods. And Shakira was like, no, no. Not today. <laughs> and she fought the boars off, kept her bag. But then she's on Instagram telling the story And at one point, she looks over to her son, Milan, and says, Milan, tell the truth, how your mommy has confronted the wild boars. Oh, oh my gosh. We believe you, Shakira. We (laughs) believe you. And to clarify. So, Shakira first spoke about it this week. We're not exactly sure when it happened, but it was all over her Instagram this week. Uh, Shakira, we are glad you're okay. Yeah. I mean, if anyone is willing to defend her life and her family's life whenever, wherever... It's Shakira. <laughs> it's Shakira. I wanna, I'm really that? impressed. Yeah, I'm impressed. <laughs> um, I'm really
2: impressed. Wild boars are terrifying.
1: What would y'all do if confronted by wild boars?
3: Um, freeze. <laughs> I want to say run.
1: They're fast.
3: Yeah, I'm pretty fast. Would, could you, like, run in a zigzag? Like, you know how they tell you if, like, an alligator's chasing you to, like, run in a zigzag? Would that help you at all?
1: I have no idea. Huh. I would call 911 and hope that Rihanna showed up.
3: <laughs> there we go. There we go. And she would stare that boar
1: down. Um, who won the game?
3: I think I it was technically... I think well, Caitlyn well, me
2: Shakira, out. I said Shakira, but then Megan got that bonus point. Was that real?
3: I feel like we said Shakira at the same time.
1: Uh.
3: Oh. We're going to have to check the tape.
1: I'm not sure who to give this to. I mean, technically, Caitlin won the game, Ooh. but we gave Megan extra emotion points for the funny one-liners and the comedic timing.
3: You know what? Being told I'm funny is a win in and of itself to me, so I give this one to Caitlyn. <laughs>
1: Spoken wow. like a true theater kid.
3: <laughs> it was an honor just to be nominated.
1: There you go. There you go. Um, so gracious. Congrats to Caitlin. You're the winner. Victorious.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much. I am just riding high right now.
1: <laughs> you can find Caitlin Dickerson's work covering immigration over at The Atlantic, and you can listen to Megan Cain's podcast Life Kit wherever Whenever, just like we hope Shakira does. (laughs) Thank you both. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. All righty.
2: Now it's
0: time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions.
3: Hi, Sam. This is Erin in Denver, Colorado. And the best thing that happened to me this week is that today is my birthday. I went to the Botanic Gardens this morning with my mom and sketched. It feels like a gift. Hi, Sam.
2: This is Katerina from South Carolina. The best part of my week this week was my husband and I closing out our first house. Woo! We're so excited and we are ready to move in. The best part of my week was that I got to see my sister after 587 days apart, when we last saw each other in February of 2020. I also got to celebrate my four year anniversary with my soon to be wife, Erin. Hey Sam, this is Susie. I'm a single mom living in Iga, Japan. And the best part of my week was being able to put my girls back into preschool. After about a month of being with them at home, it was really nice to be able to let them go play with their friends and to get a little bit of work done at home. Thanks for your show. I always enjoy it.
0: Thanks for everything you do. I love your show. I hope everyone has a great
3: week.
1: Thanks to all the listeners you heard there. Erin, Katarina, Rachel, and Susan – Listeners, you can share the best part of your week with us at any point throughout any week. Just record yourself and send that voice memo to me via email, samsanders at npr.org. That's samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week It's Been a Minute was produced by Anjali Sastry, Liam McBain, Sam Yellowhorse Kessler, Janae West, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. We had engineering help this week from Gilly Moon and our big boss is NPR's Senior VP of Programming, Anya Grunman. Listeners, before we go, I want to let you know we're in the middle of a three-part series on this show right now. We're looking at great moments in pop music crossover history. There's already one episode of this series out right now. It's all about Soul Train and the simple beauty of that show and how it crossed over without ever having to try to. You can check it out wherever you get your podcasts All right, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.